Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. For the month of December, we're going to do something special that we haven't done before. We're going to dedicate the entire month to pediatric chiropractic. As we close out our second year doing this podcast, pediatric chiropractic is something that we've never talked about before. So we're going to make up for that with this entire month. I have several wonderful guests lined up to discuss this topic from different angles. But to kick it all off, you just get me. Today, I'm going to be talking about the topic that originally led me into pediatric chiropractic before I took the 120-hour ICPA course in the late 90s. So what topic is that? You'll see. It was, as a student that I was first introduced to the concept of psychoneuroimmunology. At the time, I thought this was a name that had to be made up. Since then, it's a field that's only grown, even to the point of adding another prefix to become psychoendoneuroimmunology. Now that's gotta be fake, right? Well, in actuality, what's happening here is really something much bigger. It's the recognition that disease does not live in isolation, confined to just one organ. While disease might express itself most obviously and the dysfunction of a particular organ, this can't happen without affecting multiple organ systems. Perhaps more important is the acknowledgement that the greatest dysfunction might be hidden away, so the obvious dysfunction is merely a symptom of the first hidden dysfunction. Whatever the case, psychoneuroimmunology recognizes that these three things are interrelated so that a dysfunction in one can lead to a dysfunction in the others. So what does this have to do with pediatric chiropractic? Well, I'm getting there. I'm just taking the scenic route. The original aim was to recognize that those things that affect our psychology have the potential to flow downstream and subsequently affect our neurology and our, immu- and our immunity. Perhaps more profound was the recognition that it can also flow the other way, so that things that, are fe- that affect our immunity can also affect our neurology and leave us with a toxic effect on our psychology. So now we have to recognize that proper immune response is the key to preserving the neurology and the psychology of an individual. So what presents the greatest challenge to the immune system? That can result in a desired response or an aberrant immune response. Of course, the answer is vaccination. And now you know the topic that first led me down the road to pediatric chiropractic. Thanks to COVID-19, the average person now knows more about vaccination and probably questions more about vaccination than they ever have in the past. Now, I could go through every vaccine and discuss pros and cons, but I'm not going to do that because honestly, it's boring. So instead, I want to look at a topic that affects children more than any other population, namely synergistic toxicity. If that name is confusing to you, then great, we have something to talk about. In spite of the vaccine schedule that often demands multiple doses of vaccination to give at the same time, the potential for vaccine interactions, i.e. synergistic toxicity, is something that has never been studied. Obviously, you cannot do an experimental study as this would require you to give a potentially lethal dose to a child. On the other hand, the lack of studies should not be seen as license to give as many vaccines as you want. So the question is, how can you determine if there might be synergistic toxicity without actually performing the study? Well, Neil Z. Miller has attempted to answer this question with a series of studies that take a very interesting approach to this whole question. To demonstrate this, I'm going to point you to a particular study by Neil Z. Miller and Gary Goldman. 
The PubMed ID or PMID number is 215-43527, so you can look it up for yourself. I don't usually say this about studies, but this one's worth reading the entire thing as there's some great insights contained within this study. However, I will tell you that I looked it up the first time on my computer and I got a lot more details than I did when I looked it up on my phone. So if you really want to look at this study, I would recommend you pull out a computer and look up the PMID and I believe you will see more information in that form than you will if you just try to look it up on your phone. I won't cover all of them, so that's why I suggest you read all of it for yourself. However, I will cover some of the insights. So first off, let's look at infant mortality rate. The United States ranks 34th with an infant mortality rate that exceeds 6 per 1,000 live births. By contrast, Singapore, who ranks number 1, has slightly over 2 per 1,000 live births. Now, so when we look at number of vaccine doses given, we first detect a pattern that can be further explored and highlighted. If we look at the countries that give the fewest doses of vaccine, we find these countries clustered toward the top of our list with the lowest infant mortality rates. The worst of the whole bunch is an outlier at number 18, while the rest are in the top 10. I need to pause here for a moment to explain that a dose is defined as a vaccine against a particular disease. Therefore, a single shot may contain multiple doses, as an MMR vaccine would count as three doses and not just one. These countries with the lowest doses and the lowest infant mortality rates require 12 doses, similar to the vaccine schedule that existed when I was a kid in the late 70s. At the other end of the spectrum, we find the countries that require the highest number of doses, with the U.S. requiring more than any other country, are all clustered at the bottom with the highest infant mortality rates, and none of them being ranked higher than number 20. Okay, so the pattern we see is that countries that give fewer vaccines tend to have lower infant mortality rates, and countries that give more vaccines tend to have higher infant mortality rates. Is this merely a coincidence, or are we looking at something significant? The authors felt that if we could find a true association between these two factors, then the most likely explanation is a synergistic toxicity that results in greater toxicity with each subsequent vaccine dose that's given. The authors then used linear regression to find that the association between vaccine doses and infant mortality rate was more than 90% correlated, far too high to be the result of mere chance. They also found that time or age is protective against harm, meaning that the risk of adverse event of 5.5% for children receiving doses at less than six weeks of age dropped to 3.7% once they were over the age of six weeks. When you think of all that's being done to stop COVID, which kills only a tiny fraction of 1%, shouldn't we be doing more to protect children less than six weeks old from a vaccine injury or death when the difference in risk is known? Still, the other thing the authors found to be protective was fewer doses given at the same time. Two different studies showed that multiple doses of vaccine given at the same time increased the risk of injury by seven to eight times. They then mentioned another study that described a child who died after being given eight doses at the same time. If someone tells you that there's no evidence that multiple vaccine doses are harmful, they're not telling you the entire truth. First, not having an experimental study is not the same thing as not having any evidence. Clearly, we have the same thing being stated by multiple studies, and that certainly constitutes evidence. The second thing is that not having any evidence it is harmful is not the same thing as having evidence it is safe. This false equivalency is often used, 
but it doesn't even apply here because we do have evidence that it is harmful and possibly even deadly. Okay, so in a nutshell, this study shows that there is a correlation between vaccine doses given and infant mortality rate. So let's tie this back to psychoneuroimmunology a bit. In fact, before we do that, let's go way back. In simple terms, what is the purpose of giving a vaccine? We introduce an attenuated, we can talk more about what that means at another time, or a killed virus into your body for the purpose of having your body develop immunity against it without you needing to experience the disease or the risk factors associated with that disease. This concept is so basic to vaccination that if you ask your doctor to explain it to you, this is probably what they will tell you. Unfortunately, it's unlikely your doctor understands it any better than that themselves, which is why they fail to understand or recognize how and when and when vaccines go wrong. Let's take a moment to talk about adjuvants. The two most popular are mercury and aluminum. We're often told by those in the industry that they're preservatives. That is certainly not why they are in vaccines. If they have any preservative value at all, that's their secondary benefit. The problem is that if you inject a virus into the human bloodstream, and that virus does not have the ability to make the person sick, either by attenuation or because it was killed with formaldehyde, a known carcinogen by the way, then the human immune system will not respond to that virus and no immune response will be created. In short, the vaccine is ineffective. To remedy this, an adjuvant is added, which will irritate the immune system and force it to respond. In the case of aluminum, it's known to cause an immune response to anything that's given at the same time. It has what is known as Th2 immune stimulators capacity, or a stimulator capacity. That means it stimulates the acquired immune system to develop a reaction against anything else given at the same time. It also produces an acute increase in IgE, immunoglobulin E, which is associated with allergies when levels are elevated too high. Let's take a quick side trip, and then we'll come back to this point. I think it's a reasonable question to ask how much aluminum is okay before it becomes toxic. The FDA says that a person can have 850 micrograms per day before it becomes toxic. How do they know this? James Lyons Weiler, who has a PhD in ecology, evolution, and conservation biology, made the mistake of including a chapter in his book that discussed this very topic. After investigating this topic, he published a study entitled Reconsideration of the Immunotherapeutic Pediatric Safe Dose Levels of Aluminum. According to his research, the FDA determined the amount of aluminum a rat could be exposed to on a weekly basis before symptoms appeared. They then extrapolated this number to produce a daily safe level for adult humans. They then concluded that a human infant can handle the same daily dose of aluminum as an adult human. Dr. Lyons-Weiler then went the extra step to assume the adult dose was correct, but to then calculate an infant dose based on weight. This led to the radical conclusion that on the first day of life, most infants receive a dose of aluminum that's 17 times the toxic value based on weight. You would think this would inspire some intellectual debate and perhaps even some additional studies, but no, it led to censure and silencing of Dr. Lyonsweiler in the form of canceling all of his social media accounts. Okay, so the next question I ask is, if it's possible to get a toxic dose of aluminum, what would that look like? Initially, and at low doses, the symptoms are difficult to distinguish, but at higher doses, we begin to see some unique symptoms. Chief among these is deleterious brain effects, including seizures, lowered IQ, and something called aluminum-induced encephalopathy. The most common vaccine side effect reported to the VAERS system is encephalopathy. Coincidence? 
A 2013 study found that aluminum exposure contributed to age-related neurological disorder at any age. In other words, it could cause you to experience neurological dysfunction of the peripheral or central nervous system much earlier in life than might normally be expected, such as early onset Alzheimer's. Now, just for something to think about, if we're doing this to babies, we would not be likely to recognize it because we have nothing to compare it to. Most of these findings are the results of adults being exposed to aluminum in the course of their work environment, so the toxic event stands in contrast to their previous health. Babies don't have that opportunity. So let's go back to where we were before we took a side trip. Of massive a massive overdose leads to encephalopathy, then what does minor toxicity look like? First, as we previously discussed, allergies are the first sign of aluminum toxicity. Aluminum poisoning is cumulative, so let's add a little more. Next, we get asthma, a more severe form of allergy that's less transient. So, we add a little more. And we get autoimmune disease, which is even less transient. This is due to the fact that aluminum fires up the immune system to the point that when it runs out of foreign invaders to attack, i.e. allergies, it begins to attack your own cells. Type 1 diabetes, for example, is an autoimmune condition that is increased dramatically in the vaccination age. All autoimmune conditions are now on the rise, and they continue to increase year after year. At this point, I want you to notice that I have not once mentioned autism. This was by design to demonstrate that I don't need to. There's ample reason to suspect synergistic toxicity without touching on any hot buttons, like autism. Of course, if I were to mention autism, we'd be here for another hour. Maybe some other time. My point is merely to demonstrate that the science alone presents enough data to warrant further investigation into synergistic toxicity. So let me conclude with one more story. Dr. Paul Thomas is a pediatrician in Portland, Oregon. He recently came under fire from the Oregon State Board. His crime? He dared to conduct and publish a comparative study between the vaccinated and unvaccinated. See, Paul Thomas left the hospital system and started his own practice because he believed in informed consent and parental rights. As such, his practice grew to over 15,000 patients. It then occurred to him that his practice had a nearly even mix of vaccinated and unvaccinated. That's because when people would experience an adverse vaccine reaction and want to alter their schedule, their doctor would often dismiss them from the practice. These people would often find their way to Dr. Thomas, where he would work within their preference, whether that meant an altered schedule or no schedule at all. This, of course, got him labeled as anti-vaccine doctor, even though, as he said, how can I be anti-vax if nearly half my patients are vaccinated? Nonetheless, he had this large population, and he found that the unvaxxed had more acute illnesses, and the vaxxed had more chronic illnesses. In his study, he went on to detail which conditions and with what prevalence. The Oregon Medical Board promptly stripped him of his license. Now, if you know anything about medical boards, you know that the people who sit on these boards are not there because of their outstanding medical achievements. No, every member is there because they were placed there by their state's governor. How do you get a governor to place you on a state board? The same way you get a governor to do anything. You pay them. Once you know this, you can immediately see why this entire scenario is so preposterous. If they don't like his science, then refute it with better science. That's how science works. Apparently, we now live in the age of crony capitalism and bully science. The thing that bothers me most is that if synergistic toxicity is happening, it's having the greatest effect on babies who have no say and no means to protect or defend themselves. For that reason, it's imperative 
that we come to a clear understanding of what is happening. As our research director, Roger Coleman, likes to say, if you can measure it, then you can quantify it. So when I say a clear understanding, I mean we need to measure it and produce numbers. To simply say there's no evidence, as has been done to this point, is no longer sufficient or acceptable. Once again, we've merely scratched the surface on this subject, and there was much I chose to avoid in the interest of time. This is why I rarely engage with people on this topic, because unless they're prepared for a lecture, anything else would be incomplete and therefore insufficient. As we continue on this month with the topic of pediatric chiropractic, we must recognize that today's babies are expected to be healthy in spite of having their immune systems challenged more than any previous generation. Even in the perfect scenario, a vaccine is still an immune challenge. The field of psychoneuroimmunology recognizes that each of these immune challenges will also produce a challenge to both the neurology and the psychology of this developing brain. This is a field that's still growing, but it's largely ignored by most in authority with the power to set policy. Well, I hope you learned something today. My purpose was to waken your mind to the concept of synergistic toxicity and the fact that it may be affecting babies more than anyone. This presents a unique challenge when you endeavor to care for the pediatric population. Let this serve as a backdrop for the rest of the month, as we'll be talking with our various guests about pediatric chiropractic. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.